We're in Luke chapter 4. I'm not going to stray from Luke unless I finish this portion here this morning. You will hear, if you haven't already been here Thursday and Friday, you will hear again uh, a sermon about the last days of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to jump ahead there, like I said, unless I finish what I'm doing here. So we won't stray from Luke. We're in 4, verse 22. I want to begin there. If you remember, we left off at the end of verse 22, and I'll read that last phrase there. He's in Nazareth, his hometown, ministering. And after he begins doing things there in the sight of these people, they look at each other as if to whisper and they say, is not this Joseph's son? (laughs) Scratching their heads, well, doing more than that. And then we pick up where we want to start today. And he, talking about Jesus, said to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many leopards in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. What a story. What a change. Very, very strange. This Sabbath here in Nazareth that began so wonderfully is in effect about to end in tragedy. This is sad. Christ, and this might be the problem here, has clearly revealed himself as the Messiah. He quoted directly from the prophet Isaiah concerning his coming. Come in, welcome. So this should be this declaration that he gave in their hearing. These people who heard the prophets read every week in the synagogue are missing this in listening to Jesus here. This declaration, he's saying to them, I have fulfilled this in your hearing. What, what, What do we think about this? What should be a note of triumph and celebration in the lives of these people in Nazareth instead is a whisper of doubt in 22b. We're in Luke 4, brother, 22 beginning there. What are they missing? What do they say there? Is not this Joseph's son? What have they missed in saying that? Yeah, he's Joseph's son, but who else is he? This is the son of God. They have completely missed that. 
Why? Well, it's easy to say because the Spirit did not give them insight. Uh, you hear many people's testimonies. Some people heard the Scriptures for years before they're converted. These people, though, had clear and unequivocal proof of who Jesus was. They knew what the Messiah was to look like. And all they could say is, is this not Joseph's son? Wow, he was, but he was so much more. What do you make of first impressions? Sometimes they're lacking, aren't they? What was the first impression you had of your sweetheart when you met her? Now, don't ask my sweetheart what her first impression was of me, please. What was your first impression? It might not have been one that you, man, I got to marry that one. What's your first impression? Sometimes they're not very clear. In this one, though, they piled up all the evidences Jesus did of who he was, and they still did not perceive. It's a strange situation. In this case, as far as we know from Luke's gospel, this is a lasting impression. There is a possibility, you can find it later in the other gospels, that Christ returned late in his earthly ministry to Nazareth. But I don't know for sure. This could have been the only time Christ came here. What does that say to you? How many times did you hear the gospel before you were converted? Just think if you heard it once and turned away and never heard it again. That could be what's happening here in Nazareth. How tragic, how sad. It's apparent then that they're not true believers, at least not in this point. Christ has demonstrated all that he is. We hear who Christ is demonstrated from the pulpit here. We hear it in uh, different teaching around this church. You may hear it in something you watch on television, but you're not impressed enough to walk after Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people like that. I wish Brother Ken was here this morning to tell you about the kind of people he meets downtown Greenville every week who hear the word that he wants to share with them of the gospel and they turn and walk away doing their business downtown Greenville. These Nazarites, apparently, they knew Jesus lived here all his life. They said, this is Joseph's son. What they missed was, yeah, but he's more than that. He's the son of Mary, miraculously brought into this world. Right there from the jump, they missed that. He's more than Joseph's son. He is Mary's son. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost. What happened to all that knowledge? Nothing is said about that here. Nothing about the miraculous birth. Although they admired Jesus, marveled at the wonderful things he was doing, they were not inclined to see him as the Messiah. Well, I'm looking here. I'm looking for the most part, I guess, at believers. Everything we hear, are we inclined to follow the Messiah, to follow the Savior, Jesus Christ? Or do we want to turn around and walk the other way? 
Or, like the Nazarites, do we want more proof? I trust you don't. Like I said, I believe I'm looking at believers today. But there are some people like this. This first visit here in Nazareth is turning ugly, very ugly. There are hearers of the gospel today that get like this. (laughs) There are people that will cuss you out, literally. They'll tell you, I don't have time. I got this to do, that to do. And then, boy, you don't want to get in their path and try to stop them for what it is they want to do. They don't have time for this. Well, look at their false expectation, particularly in verses 23 to 27. We have this background here, this change of attitude, this new perspective. And he, Jesus, begins to speak to them. He said to them, doubtless, he explains their false expectation. Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And then he said to them, a prophet is not acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, and he gives them two illustrations of what he's talking about here. This is a proverbial saying, but it's true. Uh, You ever heard anybody use an expression like this? Uh, Heal yourself. What is he saying here? Well, besides the obvious, you know, pointing to medicine, you know, you want to say to the doctor, you know, if this shot is going to take care of every other virus that I'm facing, when did you have it? When did you have it? You ever run into a healthcare professional who on the sly may tell you that they won't take that shot or something? They're in effect saying that to Jesus. Heal yourself. That's what he's saying. You will no doubt say, prophet, physician, heal yourself. They would probably say, if he's a prophet, if he's who he say he is, then I'm Isaiah. This kind of thing. Heal yourself. What they're saying is, prove it. Well, what has he already done? (laughs) He has proven it. But that's their stance here. Prove it. (laughs) If it's so good, show us. Prove your claims. In 1 Corinthians 1.22, we have this very short clip about the Jews in 1 Corinthians. For Jews demand signs. And Paul was not saying that in 1 Corinthians in a flattering way. They demand signs. That's what's going on here. The Nazarenes, Nazarites, are demanding a sign. Put up or shut up. That's crude, isn't it? But that's what they were doing to Christ. Do you know how ridiculous that is? (laughs) Why is that ridiculous? Just logically thinking. Why is that ridiculous? Well, it, you see it all throughout our society. Pardon? He had already done so many miracles. That he was told everywhere that they shouldn't have needed more proof. All right. Let's extrapolate that out a little further. Who is he? Jesus. Christ. He's the Christ. He's God. It's like the society we live in today. We have the affrontery to tell God how things should be. They're doing that. Your God, if they said that in their mind, it doesn't matter. 
In our society, we have said we'll have none of God. We will decide what gender we are. We will decide how many genders we are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Away with our creator, away with our redeemer. These people were saying away with our Messiah. This is what the ridiculousness of unbelief. We are coming up with a standard that is what? If uh, Doug and I have the same belief about something, okay. But if we differ, whose truth do we follow? They're disregarding the ultimate truth in Jesus Christ. You cannot have any other truth, any other person. It is either God or it is not God. You are either for him or against him. You will either believe him or you will live in unbelief. That's what's taking place here. They are, whether they consciously know this or not, making a discernment that this isn't God. This isn't the Messiah. That's what they're saying, basically. We need a sign. You know, there are people like that that pray in certain ways like that today. I need $5,000. I need to be rid of this pain. Now, I'm, I, to be serious, some people have extreme pain. We know of them. We pray for them in our congregation. I'm not saying any of them are doing this. But people who are saddled with pain for long periods of time have the inclination to pray like this. People who are strapped financially have the inclination to pray like this. God, I need this. I need healing. I need money. I need this relationship fixed. Prove it. You're my God. Prove it. Answer my prayer in this prescribed way. We do that if we're not careful. We pray like that. Well, Jesus answers them in 24 through 27. He says a prophet is not accepted in his hometown. This is a perfect example of that. Nazareth will not accept him. It's where he grew up. They've already said we know him and his father Joseph. They find no fault in his life. They find no fault in his ministry, but they will not believe. There are people that we witness to like this. They're not ready to believe, even though they, we give them the clear answer to their dilemma. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. Rather, they question him. He, he is, if you will, so familiar to them that they can't accept that. Why, he lived just two doors down from me. He was working in the carpenter's shop. He cannot be the Messiah. Why? Because an unconverted thinker goes that way. They won't accept him. And here's what he says. But in truth, I tell you, truly, I say to you, they were given more than enough miracles to satisfy whatever standard they had to convince them that he was the Messiah. He had given them more than enough. In John's gospel, we read this, chapter 12. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. This continues throughout Christ's ministry. You know, as, uh, as someone 
well, yourselves, if you teach regularly, if you instruct your children or grandchildren and you don't see fruits and you wonder, you know, what's the problem here? The first thing you do, of course, is look at you. Maybe I'm the problem. But, you know, you begin to say, what's going on here? What's going on here? And, and we often measure success different than we should. This is Jesus, God in the flesh, who doesn't have immediate success here in Nazareth. You scratch your head and say, what's going on? How do I take this? We often resent success in other people, don't we? I was once starting a new job and uh, they were talking about, you know, making people supervisors. Somebody said, you, you got to honk your own horn. You got to let them know who you are and what you're capable of. Well, there might be a measure of truth in that. That's what resumes are for, right? <laughs> But Christ is showing everything. He's showing his hand. He's not holding back anything. And they still will not believe. And people resent this. He is confronting them. And it doesn't make them popular. It doesn't make him popular. And it doesn't make them accept him. Matthew Henry wrote this about the event in Nazareth. He said, familiarity breeds contempt probably heard that growing up somewhere. And Matthew Henry wrote that uh, only about 400 years ago. <laughs> this is nothing new. Why is that? The same thing was true when we hear the sermons from Jeremiah. Is Jeremiah welcome with open arms? He lives with those people. He's from them. But he has a contemptible message for some reason or other in their eyes. Maybe it's because we hold things like things that are dear to us cheaply. What do I mean by that? In your Christian life, what are some of the things that you could hold cheaply? I'm not saying you do. What are they? Here's one. How often do we cherish the word? How often do we read it? How often do we come to hear it preach, come to hear it taught? Some people hold the word of God cheaply. They go home on Sunday, close it, and it's not open again till the next Sunday. Some people hold the sacraments cheaply. It, there's a reason that the week we have communion is printed in there a guide to help you prepare your soul for communion. We cannot hold these things cheaply. What did it cost Jesus Christ? we're seeing that here, that we can partake of his body and blood. What did it cost? And sometimes we hold that too cheaply. Well, this, you know, we're not alone. Israel was like this, weren't they? You go back to the book of Exodus, what's going on there? In Numbers, we read this, chapter 21. And, and you know these, if you uh, studied the Old Testament, especially Exodus, but over into Numbers 2, we read this. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Here's their quote. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Now listen to this next verse. For is, there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. <laughs> they go from there's no food, no water, and by the way, we're tired of this stuff here that you rain down from heaven every day, manna. Isn't that food? 
but they say it's worthless. They're holding cheaply the grace of God. Let's not ever do that. What Jesus did for us did not come cheaply. And we see he gives examples of this. And here again, I told you about the perspective change in Luke. And we're going to see that in the examples that Jesus gives right here. Begin with verse 25. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them. None of who? Where? In Israel. But only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Where's that? You don't have to tell me on a map. As opposed to Israel, what is it? It's Gentile territory. Gentile territory. He went to the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. That's where he went. No wonder Luke is trying to prepare us for this in the previous verses we were studying to show them, look, Israel, and Jesus is saying it very plainly. God has had elected in the time of Elijah to send relief to a Gentile widow. And in Israel, there were a lot of widows. What's going on there? What's going on? Well, I want you to answer that before we go here today, if you will. Follow with me. This is an example. There are other places in history uh, this kind of thing happened too. Zarephath is in Sidon, a Gentile region. We have this chain of, of uh, this change of perspective. You know what else went on in Sidon? You might not know this unless you were reading through the Old Testament. But in 1 Kings 17, we have one of the thorns in the side of Elijah. We have the realization that this was the home of Jezebel. That's where God went to give a widow relief in the home of Jezebel. One of the things we need to realize is God is not obligated to work miracles. What is this Bible doctrine we're talking about here? God's choosing to go to this widow inside and through Elijah. What are we talking about? Election. Election. What does that involve? Reminds me of when I was in the military, you know, you go do something and uh, (laughs) drill sergeant calls you in. I was a squad leader and had a guy who was getting out of line. My name comes over the intercom and I go over there and the drill sergeant is chewing this guy out. And in effect, he says to him, who died and left you in charge? (laughs) What are you going to say? Not me, drill sergeant, not me. God is in election. He is sovereign. He is in charge. He will decide. I'm reading through the Old Testament currently and the stories there about how God killed these people and these people. And if you stop and you want to throw your fist up and say, what kind of God are you? You are so way off base. What right has the potter, pottery to say to the potter, why have you formed me thus? 
This is what's going on here. God in his sovereignty through Elijah went to this widow, Gentile widow, widow inside him. God's will was to go to her. God's will. We cannot overlook that. But will they believe that? No. They're not ready to believe that God would be so unkind to them as to include Gentiles in the plan of salvation. I'm not Jewish. I'm here to say amen. God included Gentiles. I guess that's a category I'd fit in. I'm not Jewish. He included us. Okay, you don't believe that? Let me tell you something else that happened. This successor to Elijah, a man named Elisha, what a prayer he prayed when he, well, he spoke it to Elijah. He asked him what he could do for him. What did he say? You remember that? He said to Elijah, I want a double portion of what you have. What a blessing. What a prayer. I want twice as much as you have. It wasn't an egotistical thing. He wanted to be used by God like Elijah was. Here's an example that fits right in here with what Jesus is teaching. What are we talking about? There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed. But only Naaman, the who? The Syrian. What do we have again going on? Our history brother out there. <laughs> Syria's not in Israel, is it? That's right. Another Gentile. There are leopards in, lepers in, in Israel. But God chose to go elsewhere. When they, talking about our story here, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Were filled. This is awful. This is awful. How could you do this? What are you saying here? <laughs> well, if you want to look that up, it's in 2 Kings chapter 5. One of the things, and, and the grace of God is extreme. Did Naaman run right down to the river and cleanse himself? No. You read the story, his servant had to go and tell him, look, just because this message isn't delivered the way you think it should be, doesn't mean it's any less true. Go and do what was said. He goes and he's cleansed. He's even, Naaman's even less spiritual than Israel is in his reaction. But God is sovereign in electing grace and he decides Naaman is going to be healed. God came to the Syrian. His pride, self-conceit had to be overcome, but it was. Well, we have the background. We have this story here. Then lastly, look at the angry response in 28 and 29. They were filled with wrath. They were angry over God's sovereign work, especially among the Gentiles. They tried to kill him. Why? What is this? It is ethnic pride. It is egotistical pride. It's too much for them. They think that none but the Jews should receive these blessings from the hand of God. There's a commentator 
that I saw quoted in one of my commentaries named Fred Craddock, and he writes this. Jesus does not go elsewhere because he is rejected. That's what took place here. Okay. He is rejected because he goes elsewhere. You got that right? He didn't go and do these things because Israel rejected him. They rejected him because he did these things. They did not like the sovereignty of God. They did not like this Messiah doing things outside of the way they think they should be done. He is driven out up to this hill <coughs> and they try to throw him down and kill him. Think of all the things that you have to put out of your mind in order to get to this place. We say they're upset with his election, his sovereignty. Did you forget about his holiness? Did you forget about his greatness? Did you forget about his kindness? Did you for name 10 other attributes that you know about God? Did you forget all those things and you're concentrating on this one attribute because it's not affecting you positively? This is silly. They throw him out and they want to kill him. And they forget God says in Romans, he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. God is in charge, friend. God is in charge. Further, it says in Romans, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And somehow Jesus is delivered out of this. It puts it this way in verse 30. Passing through their midst, he went away. What happened? We don't know. I can't tell you. No other gospel record of this tells you either. Somehow, miraculously, he went right through this. One of the things we need to see, and I know you know this, but if you don't walk in the world, you may not feel this. There is no neutrality when it comes to God. The people we witness to most of the time don't say, oh, well, that's nice. Appreciate that. Most of the time they get their hackles up and they get upset with you. Are you telling me God does this, that, or the other? There is no neutrality. And the scripture says that. You're either for him or against him. Herod failed to kill Jesus shortly after his birth. Here, this attempt by his people, not just Jews, but hometown Jews, failed in their plot to kill him. This probably was the last time he was in Nazareth. What of all these souls that heard the word and did not respond? How terrible, how sad for them. The similar situation exists today. Although in our country, a lot of times the son of God and his qualities is not preached like it should be. But it's cast aside. Jesus moves on and he's gonna persevere in well-doing. He is going to finish what God sent him here to do. So it is not, as it says in John a number of times, it was not yet his hour. This case here, that's true. It was not his hour. How he got out of there, we don't know. Let me just uh, quote you a couple lines of a piece of poetry I read. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. 
Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? What? It is heart-wrenching to see people that you love shun the gospel, isn't it? One day, (laughs) you're going to have to answer that question, what he's going to do with you when he asks you, you know, about your belief in him. Any questions or comments? I have a comment. Yes, ma'am. I'm I'm reminded of how long it took Peter to accept the ministry to the Gentiles. It took a vision. (laughs) Yeah. Three times he had to see that that he was sent to the Gentiles as well. And Paul, when he was on the road to Damascus, he was one of the Jews that just was persecuting the Christians. And he got the message that he was to go to the Gentiles. And Naaman and and this widow were recipients of that same choice. More than ever, Reformation theology or... or, Yeah. yeah. A number of us weren't. No, I was brought up that you choose God. Right. <laughs> well, and as we finish the Gospel of Luke, you're going to see one of the most glorious examples of that, aren't you? The thieves on the cross. Exactly. One of them rails against Christ. The other one just says, remember when you, me when you get into your kingdom? Boom! <laughs> Jesus remembers him and says... This day you'll be with me. There's no explanation for the sovereignty of God because his ways are above our ways. We cannot. What made you, what made me such darlings that we're in the kingdom of God? (laughs) Nothing. You had been with Jesus. I know. And where. Where do the gospels end? With Peter denying Christ and off in a corner somewhere. Until Jesus comes to him in his electing grace and questions him three times. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? We'll get to that, Lord. God doesn't give up on him. Paul's running around and killing people in the name of some kind of righteous belief. And God elects to save him. What grace that is. What grace. Let me read to you two other verses from the Gospel of John before we go. In John chapter 19, I'm only reading these because i got a minute here, and they just struck me uh, (laughs) uh, forcefully. I was reading them recently. Uh, Well, I'm still in Luke. No wonder it doesn't make sense. I just said John, didn't I? I was in the right chapter, wrong book. John chapter 19. Now, this seems to be a little (laughs) off course, but bear with me. Pilate, at the time of Christ's crucifixion, wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified, excuse me, was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. I only bring this up to ask you to think about the crucifixion of Jesus. That, what was inscribed on that plaque in three languages? What's that? The King of the Jews. Now, (laughs) the Jews wanted him to write that a little differently. 
But for the first time in his life that we can see from Scripture, Pilate makes a decisive ruling here. He says, what I have written is what I have written. It's going to stay up there. Jesus was and is indeed king. He is. I just wanted to ask you, do we really live as though he is king of our lives? We see his sovereign grace in, in the gospel here of Luke. We definitely see it in his crucifixion and resurrection. Three languages this was written. Aramaic, which was the language of most first century Jews in and around Jerusalem especially, was also written in a Latin, which is the official uh, language of the Roman Empire, was also written in Hebrew. Uh, <clears throat> Hebrew was uh, an intellectual thing. Uh, the other Jews would have known this, even if they weren't acquainted with Aramaic. But all three of these languages, I mean, I meant Greek, I'm sorry, I said Hebrew, Greek, which was a popular language of commerce. And other people would have known it out and around, outside of Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is, the, the cross is attesting to the fact that like in Luke, Jesus is king of the world. In Luke, we're studying that he is the savior of the world. I don't mean every person, but he is the savior to every race, tongue, tribe. And that was the witness that Pilate was giving at the death of Jesus. This, now tell me if you've ever seen anybody like this in 21st century America. This politician who wavered back and forth between popular opinion and had no backbone at all, was letting a, an innocent man be crucified, is used by God to write up there the testimony that this was king of the Jews. Isn't God wonderful? <laughs> it ought to encourage our prayer life. Uh, Pilate was not his own man totally, was he? <laughs> not at all. Well, a couple other things about that. I'll run through quickly in the last minute we have. A microcosm of the world at this time. We have proud, indecisive Pilate, this wonderful politician, an example of it. We have the soldiers who were nailing Christ to the cross doing their job as Roman soldiers, their routine business, and then they go about gambling for the one garment that wasn't going to be cut up. There were mockers, those whose only interaction with the Son of God was to deride him. There were some passive onlookers. They saw this happening, had no real interest, didn't speak up, say anything definitive about it. There was the desperate, dying thief on the cross who looks to the Savior for help and hope, and guess what? He finds it. Then there are the family and friends who were there, sorrowful but faithful to the end, waiting to see what's going to happen. And shortly after this crucifixion, just a few days, they're going to see their faith substantiated, validated, punched as true because Christ comes out of the grave. All of these people saw that sign. Pilate had it written, and some people say he even wrote it, but he did dictate the words at the least. They all saw that sign. And think of these different responses that would have come from these different people. 
What is our response to the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the Jew, the King of the world was crucified on our behalf? You know, you can find a face in the crowd that might fit you or maybe used to fit you. Uh, Peter was one of those people. Take hope from that. Take hope from that. Uh, there were other people who walked away, though. Be warned by that. Be warned. Anybody want to say anything else? Any other comments or anything? Well, what we uh, celebrate today is just wonderful. Uh, Jesus is the Savior uh, of sinners. He saved us. He's a Savior to those who will yet be saved. And he's also <laughs> the judge of those who will be damned. The day is coming. The day of grace will pass. Let's not you know, be frivolous about that. Shall we uh, pray as we go? Father, we thank you for the word of God. May it ring true in our lives and in our hearts. We pray that it would be uh, that which motivates us to serve this wonderful Savior that we have. Bless our uh, worship as we go into it. May it be energized. May we not take lightly this opportunity to avail ourselves of the means of grace. Be lifted up in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.